democracy, once you get it, it's hard to keep it. It will involve the people being involved all the time. And the people get lazy as the society grows, flourishes, prospers. People get lazy and leave it up to everybody else. And so I think we failed our democracy. The people have failed our democracy as much as our leaders have because we haven't held them accountable. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Freedom Feature, and I'm your host, Barry Bussey. With me today, I have the former premier of the province of Newfoundland, Brian Peckford. And we're going to discuss about this public inquiry that's going on about the use of the Emergency Act powers by the Trudeau government. Mr. Peckford, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, sir. Pleasure being back on your program again. Thank you. I've noticed that your blog has been just firing on all cylinders, and I would encourage our viewers to go to Premier Peckford's blog. And Can you just give us the address where they can find your blog? Type in www.peckford42. The number four and two, that's the year I was born, 1942. So it's www.peckford4and2.wordpress.com. And let me tell you, folks, you will be getting a lot of information from the last signer of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, who's still alive with us. And we're so thankful for that because Premier Peckford is an important voice uh, at this time in this country. We are so thankful that you are still with us and able to give us some wisdom. And right now we need some wisdom with respect to what's going on with this public inquiry that the government has set up. And I very much appreciate your blog post a couple of days ago dealing with this. And I'm wondering if you can just guide us through to what you call outrageous about this public inquiry. Well, the whole idea, you would think of, a, of an inquiry to take a look at uh, what the government and the parliament did, parliament being the Liberal MPs and the NDP MPs that together formed a majority to allow the government to invoke this Emergencies Act. And then under the Emergencies Act, there is a provision which on first blush, people would say, oh, that's great. They, uh, after the uh, emergency is lifted under the legislation, the uh, government is going to set up an inquiry so that they can take a look at what they did and whether it was correct or not. The only problem is the way the inquiry is set up under the Act is that the government is investigating itself. So if you want to talk about blatant conflict of interest, here you have it. How can a government legitimately say we have an inquiry that's going to get to the bottom of this to see whether everything was done proper or not, when it's they who are establishing what the terms of reference of that inquiry is going to be, and they're the ones who actually appoint uh, the main commissioner who then proceeds to hire other people under him to carry out the inquiry. So it's a bit of, a, it's a bit of nothing, really, and it's, it's unfortunate. Uh, when this uh, act was brought in, it was an amendment to the War Measures Act, and it was Mr. Harper that brought it in when he was Prime Minister, the Conservatives. So it makes no difference whether it's the Conservatives or the Liberals. Just note that it's 1985, so that would be Brian Mulrooney, right? Uh, I could have been Brian Mulrooney, yeah. Yes. Okay, it was Mr. Mulrooney, and well, the, it was a Conservative government. Yes. And so uh, they were the ones who had an opportunity. My point is, is that I'm not attacking the Liberals or the NDP more than I'm attacking the Conservatives. Right. It was right. a Conservative uh, government who amended the War Measures Act and brought in the Emergencies Act to replace the War Measures Act. And they're the ones who put in this silly provision of a, an inquiry, which is really not an inquiry at all. It's mm. somebody who's uh, examining themselves. So you know what the end result of this is going to be. Would it have been better to have Parliament itself, so all of the the House of Commons as well as the Senate, set up this inquiry as opposed to just having the government itself, the executive, setting up an inquiry for its own misuse? or That, that would have been better if, if they had done a sort of a House of Commons Senate, in other mm. words, a parliamentary committee, 
to standing committee or whatever uh, yeah. to be in session to oversee this thing and bring in conservative members as well as other members, not just NDP and liberals, but in any formation of that even, there would be a preponderance of liberals or NDP on it, no doubt. So right. it still wouldn't have passed the, the complete smell test of objectivity. What, right. the, what the legislation should have done is created legislation which said, after the emergency is over, Parliament authorizes that an independent commission be established of people outside of government who mm -hmm. are experts in this field and establish a parliamentary committee to oversee that commission, if you will, decide on what the terms of reference are, decide who is going to be part of that commission, something which gives it complete independence. Whoever is appointed to go on that commission would have input into what the terms of reference were to be. Right. Something right. along those lines. And give it more time yes. than February, because there's no way by February they're going to be able to do what, what's necessary to do here. And so it's all a bit of a sham in my view, and um, I'm very sorry to have to say that because I supported Mr. Mulroney, I supported the Conservative Party of Canada, and so I'm not just attacking um, the Liberals government here and the NDP, I'm attacking the legislation which has set up this inquiry, which is completely not the kind of thing we need in order to find out whether this Emergencies Act was really necessary or not. Necessary from both a science point of view and necessary from a and whether it was constitutional, which was whether it was a, which was whether it was legal. There's a situation where the government itself is now even setting the terms of the public inquiry. So as you read through the the terms of the public inquiry, it's totally focused on on the protests, not on the actions of the government. Exactly, there's a whole list of stuff there that they the inquiry is supposed to investigate as it relates to the convoy. And yeah. then, uh, when, as it relates to government, is all very broad, general words used, nothing specific like it was for the terms of reference for the convoy. So it's very, very slanted in favor of the government and against the convoy. So right from day one, the terms of reference themselves indicate that this is not a partial, impartial inquiry at all. It is already the, the, uh, the you know, it's all staked against the convoy and against civil disobedience. That, to me, is going to really affect the legitimacy of the end result of this commission. Now, granted, public is allowed, and we encourage the public to uh, participate and uh, put in the the various briefs and, the, and that kind of thing to be able to let the commissioner know as to what the extent of the opinion of the people are. But it is very troubling when any lawyer who's looked at this whole situation with the use of the Emergencies Act would say that it just did not pass just even a prima facie case, we call it. In other words, just the first look at of the situation that the act even was properly invoked. Exactly, because in, in the act itself, it says it has to conform with the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Well, yeah. in order to conform with the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, there has to be a test. And that test is demonstrably justify what you're doing as necessary, invoking this Emergencies Act as necessary. And yeah. there's no demonstrably justifiable um, uh, procedure put forward by the government in order to uh, justify what they, what they have done. So it doesn't even meet the first test of, of the Charter, and therefore should never have been invoked in the first place. It's so disappointing and so tragic that our democracy has fallen so far. And very few people, except myself, are actually taking the government on, on the question of how the conflict of interest, that this is a flawed inquiry, that this is not an independent inquiry. There's very little comment about it, except for what I'm doing. Even a lot of the people who are on our side, or on my side, as it relates to the freedom movement and all that across Canada, has said very little. And the response that I've gotten so far from that blog has been disappointing. So there you go. I mean, um, I find that once you really zero down on something like I've done on this inquiry, once you speak about it in general terms, you get a whole bunch of reactions. Oh, that is wrong. Yes, that's the conflict of interest. There's no question, right? Logically and reasonably, that is a, that is a conflict of interest. Mm -hmm. When you get down like I've done and actually quote the terms of reference, quote who the commissioner is, a commissioner who spent time in the law firm 
that Justin Trudeau's father became a part of when he retired from politics, in other right. words, right? The taint of the game, not an independent commissioner. Then when you, when you start doing that and actually zeroing down on specifics, that's when I find that people fall away in their support for what I'm saying. And it's, right. it's very sad and very tragic. You know, and, and also, I understand this commissioner was also involved in the administration. I'm not sure exactly what his role was, but when uh, John Turner was prime minister, I think, as well. Yes, exactly. And another person that he hired, uh, a co-counsel, uh, was uh, the law clerk for Judge Binney. And Judge Binney became a Supreme Court justice. He's retired now. Mm-hmm. But he also worked for the federal government during the Constitutional Conference. In that background, if you go back into the archives of the video of the First Minister's Conferences in that Constitutional Conference, and you see Pierre Elliott Trudeau, the Prime Minister, and then you look behind him and you see the like scores of lawyers and scholars behind him, bureaucrats and so on, there you'll find uh, Mr. Binney, who later became judge. Why did he become judge? Well, he, he may have had the legal qualifications, but he also had other qualifications like being in support of what the federal government was doing as related to the Constitution and the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Mm-hmm. So once again, you have a person who worked with Judge Binney when he was a judge, a law clerk who's now part of this inquiry, who we're supposed to trust as being completely independent as it relates to political parties. Well, we find that's not true. Mm. But but it's also the case, too, that there's a lot of, I mean, let's face it, most judges, not all, but but most judges have had some form of political involvement one time or another. And so here in Canada, we recognize that and we fully uh, expect our judges that when they are appointed on the on the bench, that they would nevertheless still have a recognition of the importance of impartiality and the importance of being neutral and that kind of thing. Nevertheless, people still are concerned about the optics, right? Because justice is to be done, but also has to be seen to be done. done. And that's that's an adage that goes back a long ways as it relates to democratic governance and parliamentary democracy and all the rest of it. But... The other problem is, is that right from the start, the government, when they announced they were, you know, they, they had to go ahead with this and they were going to announce a terms of reference, the first thing they should have come out and said is, right, we're, we're appointing this judge or this person to be the commissioner mm-hmm. and, and acknowledge where he comes from. Acknowledge where he comes from. The other problem is, I think it was this judge and one of the other people that are involved in the commission now were also involved in the Supreme Court of the Territories, both the Yukon, the Northwest Territories, and and Nunavut. And, of course, that is all federal, right? Because the the territories are federal. It's a territory. It's not a province. And therefore, once again, in order to get those kinds of appointments, you've got to be pretty cushy with with the government in power in order to do that and have that kind of federal slant. Remember, we're talking about a federation here. Yeah. We're not talking about a a unitary state where it's only one government, the government of Canada, right. and governments out of the Constitution, all of which will have powers. And mm. so, therefore, you have to go out of your way to try to appoint somebody who's very, very independent, especially when it's on such an explosive issue as this one right. has become. It's not right. like your normal inquiry either. Right? right? In normal circumstances, what you just said holds a lot of weight. In the present context... It's very, very difficult to give this man and this inquiry a pass because the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court has already come out and, and, and formed an opinion about the truckers even before he sees one shred of evidence brought before him in the Supreme Court of Canada. Right, right. And the Prime Minister himself has come out and condemned a lot of people without evidence. Right. And, so, and you've got courts who've already ruled uh, without even looking at the medical evidence or the science. Uh, Judge in Manitoba did this. He ignored the science from the independent researchers and just took the government's line, hook, line, and sinker, without any examination in his opinion about the other side. So we have all become very suspicious of right. our system, and all the more reason that the government 
and the NDP party is involved here too, that the right. leader of the NDP party should have said to the Prime Minister, hold on one second now, I don't know if we can go along with this, what you're doing here, because you know, like I know, that we all thought uh, that the Ottawa situation was the same as the Coote situation. We now know through a parliamentary committee that it's not. Mm. We were just, right? This is completely right. different in Ottawa. It's completely separate. Absolutely. Uh, the Rutgers Convoy was a legally established entity, had a board, had, had accountants, had lawyers, right? Were quite responsible that they were negotiating with the mayor of Ottawa from day one, that the parliamentary committee has discovered that there was no foreign influence here. Right. And in the terms of reference of this inquiry. Yes. So all of these things are there on the table. And so, like, the leader of the NDP should have stood up and said to the Prime Minister and the Minister of Justice, no, no, we, we can't do it this way. We should have learned from the convoy. And now we really need to go out of our way to establish a more independent commission. And we must allow the commission that is to be established to participate in what the terms of, of reference are to be, what they're supposed to investigate. That's the key point here, it seems, that... We need to have a commission that is going to be able to pass the smell test, to be able to say, hey, you know what, uh, whatever the commission says here, we are going to be confident that the commission was not in any way biased or whether by the procedure, by the terms of reference. But like you say, the terms of reference itself sets the course. And I often think of the statement made by Winston Churchill, who said that history is going to be kind to him because he's going to write it. And it seems to me in many ways uh, that the prime minister is wanting to make the commission already ahead of time to be able to say, you know what? The commission is going to be kind to me because I've written the terms of conditions so that it will be. And that's the problem here. We need to have more independence of right. the commissioner. And, and accountability. There has to be accountability here. There are people mm. who have died. Thousands of people have died because their surgeries were delayed because of a lockdown or a mandate in one of the provinces. Right? Mm. Was that necessary? You know, Professor Douglas Allen at Simon Fraser University came out with a report in April 2021 which said the cure was worse than the disease after he looked at 80 studies. And he traced that back to even in August 1980 and 2020, even in August 2020, it was known by the authorities. It was known that no cost-benefit analysis would ever show that the benefit was greater than the cost. Right, right. So, So the data was there, the information was there, yeah. And, and so, therefore, there's no words about accountability, holding people responsible. Uh, I mean, this is awful. And this is what's happening all the time in Canada now, is that these inquiries or these uh, other kinds of uh, investigations are undertaken, but nobody's ever fired. Mm. Nobody's, nobody's ever held accountable. Right. There's a slap on the wrist, okay, and we'll amend this, we'll do this different the next time. But there's no real accountability. Right. Right. And and so the thing is, is that we have to have a situation where I think everyone would say, what motivated the trucker protest? That's not anywhere in in the commission uh, terms, exactly. uh, you know, and it's it's like the, the, the way you read the terms, it's almost like uh, the, the, the trucker protest just kind of appeared. Um, you know, it's like, there's no context here. There's no sense of recognition of the pain that the people in Canada suffered over the last several years. Uh, there is a reason why the people showed up in Ottawa on Wellington street. And it definitely wasn't all of Ottawa. Yes, there were a couple of side streets, but the reality is there's no context here. And I think, I think it's going to be extremely important for the commissioner to look at that context, even though it's not there, but one could encourage the commissioner to to do that, even though I suppose it might be argued by the government, well, no, you don't have no business going there. But the, the reality is, if, if you really want to understand what's happened with the use of the Emergencies Act, you need to look at the context. And as I say, no civil or criminal charges are possible. The terms of reference says this is off limits. This is off limits for the for the commission. So therefore, 
they can't even touch that or go near that. So mm. this will be a complete whitewash from the point of view of accountability. We've got these problems, obviously, with the um, commission. And again, I encourage our listeners to look up your, your blog piece, Canada's Emergency Act Inquiry. It's outrageous. I think it's extremely important uh, to understand where you're coming from on this. I certainly understand your hesitation in supporting the commission. And I agree with your analysis here that the terms of commission itself is a problem to, to begin with. And, yeah. and so let's have a look at what we would want or we would encourage Canadians to write to the commission. What would you encourage Canadians to do when they make their briefs, make their presentations? Because it's open to every Canadian to send in a brief to the commission and uh, it'll be available at least until, I understand, till October 31. They're going to allow to submit submissions until October 31. What is your recommendation to Canadians? What would you invite them to express their opinions on? I would say that they should write to commission and say, go back to the government and ask for an enlargement of their term to reference and give them some ideas as to how the commission could gain more credibility with the public. Extend the time that you have for the commission uh, and uh, enlarge the terms of reference to make it more balanced between what they have to find out about the convoy and what they have to find out about what government did. That, that to me, would be the, the first uh, order of business because yeah. otherwise, under the present and that the uh, commission would be allowed to uh, at least make recommendations that there's an area here in the government of Canada where we need to find accountability. There's certain decisions that were made here that don't seem to be backed up by the facts. And so mm. we need to get more information. For example, already on the, on the government record or on the court record of the federal court, through my court case so far in the discovery period that's gone on, we have been able to identify, and this has been made public, that the Transport Canada people on the travel mandate side of things did not have expert information from the epidemiologists in the Department of Health. Nobody recommended to the Department of Transport to go ahead with this travel mandate from a scientific point of view or from a medical point of view. So there's something going on that's wrong here. Why did the government of Canada through the Department of Transport go ahead with this travel mandate when they didn't have the science of their own people behind yeah. Either from the Department of Transport itself or from the Public Health Agency. That's been put on the record by my lawyer, Keith Wilson. Yes. In an interview he's done publicly uh, for anybody to, uh, to read, which I put on my blog at the time. If this is to gain any credibility at all, people should write in. And if enough people write in, he may be forced to go back to the, the, to the minister and to the government and say, listen, you know, I'm getting an overwhelming response here. That people are interested, but they want to ensure that this is independent and, and that the terms of reference are enlarged so that we take a look at what's going on here and who is responsible for making decisions which were not based upon fact. Right. And, and, right. and therefore, people must be held accountable. They wouldn't take them to court, no. But the commission could recommend that there is some areas here in the department or in the Department of Justice or wherever under, after they find out mm -hmm. uh, that are very troublesome from a legal point of view and from a competent point of view and from an accountability point of view. And therefore, they should be further investigated by a lawyer or a team of lawyers or whatever to determine whether, in fact, there is grounds for civil or criminal investigation and charges. Right. And I think if that was done something like that was done, the whole tenor and nature of that inquiry would change immeasurably and it would become far more credible. You know, that's a very good point. I appreciate the great work that you and your lawyers have done on this important case on the travel mandate. It, it is something that, I guess, in a way, I wasn't surprised uh, to find out that indeed there was no uh, scientific basis for the government uh, to make the mandate because one got the sense that this was political and this then uh, becomes something that we've got to be 
able to say, okay, we need justice here. Um, if this was a political thing, if I have been in, you know, and I'm just representing one of millions of people across the country, been unable to uh, go and visit my grandchildren uh, in Vancouver, uh, haven't been able to uh, be involved in important family events because the prime minister had a political motivation to prevent the average Canadian to be able to travel, there is something seriously wrong here. And if this commission cannot get into that, then that becomes a real problem. And one of the people that are part of my lawsuit, because I'm not the only one that's in on that lawsuit, there are four or five other people on my actual statement of claim, plus others who have joined in with me who are going to court on the same basis. An individual who has a business in Yellowknife and in Ontario. And now he, he couldn't travel for uh, to, to uh, prosecute his business right? because he, he, he refused to get the vaccination and therefore couldn't travel to keep his business open and, and yellow night. So right. this is a real problem for people to make a living. And Section 6 of the Charter says you have a right to earn a living, any, to earn a livelihood anywhere in Canada. Mm. And you also have a right to leave, right, Canada. Yeah, mobility, yes. Problem. The mobility clause. So that's what we're arguing. And so the other problem we got with this, eh, and that's why I'm suspicious, is after we launched our lawsuit against the travel mandate and the government partially lifted the travel mandate, not completely, and only suspended it. Only suspended, that's right. They are now gone into court to try to dismiss our case. Yeah. How crazy. So if they were confident in their side of defeating our case, why won't they let it go to court in its normal course, rather yeah. than bring in ahead of time a dismissal application, which the judge is now going to hear before our case gets heard. And if the judge rules in favor of the government, our case gets dismissed without even being heard. I think the entire country needs to rise up in opposition. It's just outrageous, using your term, Uh, it's outrageous that the government would not be willing to allow the people of this country to see the light of day of what has happened behind the doors with respect to the cabinet decisions and then to say, okay, well, because we've suspended it, we no longer need this case. Well, yes, we do need this case. Absolutely. The people who have suffered as a result of this mandate need to hear the truth. And it's time for government to come clear on this. I'm also bothered by the fact that the prime minister, I think the last count I I saw was something like 70 orders, orders in council Mm -hmm. that are considered secret. So it's top secret that they will not release that information. And it seems that an inquiry needs access to whatever government document there is to be able to get to the bottom of, of what went on and why the decisions were made. And it'll have to be in, in also as it relates to, to my case. We're going to be seeking th- those order and councils and for this to be uh, provided to, to the court. Because yeah. if we don't have all the information, then how can, we, uh, how can the court make a decision against or for anybody? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, okay, this is great. I appreciate this on the uh, public inquiry. Now I want to talk about the Peckford Magna Carta that uh, you have put together as well. Uh, You've presented this at a uh, conference back in May. You're calling it Canada's Magna Carta, We the Citizens of Canada. You've got a list of a number of things here. One of the uh, first items, uh, and again, I encourage the uh, public to go have a look on the blog post of Premier Peckford uh, to see exactly what we're talking about and we'll we'll provide links here as well at the bottom of our screen how is it that an individual like yourself who is involved with the creation of the charter of rights to begin with now some was it 40 years later and is now calling for a canadian magna carta how is it we got here 
that's the great tragedy of the last 40 years is that this amendment to the Constitution and this new Constitution Act 1982, the Canada was changing. The ink wasn't dry on that charter and on that Constitution Act when, as I say in a couple of my speeches, the people uh, who run the media of the country and some of the law schools and lawyers of this country started to question even how this came together. For example, Newfoundland was discounted as being the government that helped break the impasse to get what we have today. And then we saw at the same time a change by the jurisprudence people of Canada, the lawyers and the law societies and the faculties of law in universities and how they interpreted a constitution. The words and the sentences and the phrases in that charter the meanings could be changed if, in fact, they viewed the values of the society have changed. And so, therefore, we must now interpret the Constitution different than as it was written, even within 10 or 15 years of it being written. When the whole idea of the Constitution of 82 was not only to bring the Constitution home, not only to have a charter of rights and freedoms, but have a, a procedure by which the charter could, the Constitution could be amended. Right. So there is a formula there to amend the Constitution. It's not up to the judges to change the Constitution. It's up for them to interpret it. But what they do is they've made new law and made right. new policy and mm -hmm. never just interpreted it. And this is why I have a great problem with the lawyers and with the justices that are around today. And this happened over time. It took time for this to happen. Remember, the Oates test, which is one of the early decisions of how to interpret the, the Section 1 of the Charter was back in the 80s, in right. 1986, right. I think, mm -hmm. you know, only four or five years after. Today, it's highly likely that if a, a judge today was looking at that same section and interpreting and putting down things, it would have been a lot more diluted mm -hmm. than what the Oates test was back in 1986, to give you a really good example. Which, and of course, the courts have also diluted that test now, especially in administrative decisions, as we've seen. Exactly. So this is how we got here is because, and I think it goes back philosophically to the whole idea that many historians have talked about, and that is the cycle of history or the cycle of even uh, democracies, right? Like the mm. fall of Rome, the fall of Athens, when they had a people's sort of democracy in Athens during Socrates' time, Pericles' time. Solon's time, four and five hundred BC, but it doesn't last because, and a lot of other people, including Plato, have talked about this because people being people, democracy is hard. Once you get it, it's hard to keep it because right. it will involve the people being involved all the time, mm. and the people get lazy as the society grows, flourishes, prospers. People get lazy and leave it up to everybody else. It's like the Christians talk about Sunday. Well, you're a Sunday Christian. You're not a Christian during the week. Mm. In order to be a true Christian, you got to practice what you learned on Sunday for the rest of the week. Right. That, that makes a true, and when I grew up, that was what was, was taught to me, that in order to be a real Christian, it wasn't the going to church on Sunday. Yes, that was part of it. And learn your Bible and learn um, about Jesus and about Christian philosophy through Paul and, and all the others, but it was also to practice what it was you were learning and what the preacher was preaching on Sunday. Right. And, and the democracy is very much like that in the sense that we do only practice it when we have an election, and in between elections, uh, then uh, there's um, a fall-off of the civic engagement, and therefore the MPs and the MLAs are not held accountable to the extent that they should be in order for the, the theory of that democracy that we have to become a practical reality every week in the legislature and in the parliament. After we created our, our country in 1867 and added to it in, in 1982, we've, we forgot that in order for it to survive, we must have continual involvement of the citizen and to force accountability on those we elected in between elections, just not at election time. And so I think we failed our democracy. The people have failed our democracy as much as our leaders have, because we haven't held them accountable and allowed right. them to pass a lot of these 
I'm, you'll be surprised how many times I get asked to me, oh, well, how come the public health officer can do this? How right. come the minister of health can do that as related to the mandates? I said, because we the people, through our representatives in the legislature and in the parliament, allowed these people to pass a special law giving power to the public health officer giving power to the minister and the premier and the cabinet and didn't have to come back to parliament anymore. Right. We handed the power over to the executive rather than keep it with the parliament and have a parliamentary committee in session all the time while this mandate was on that the public health officer had to report to so that you had that linkage of democracy all the way through. We yeah. could have done that easily in every parliament of Canada and in the parliament in Ottawa. There could have been a standing committee of MPs that oversaw what the government was doing as related to initiating mandates and lockdowns. And that way we would have had people uh, like Dr. Brian Bridle, like Dr. Eric Payne, like Dr. Paul Alexander, all of whom are Canadians and who are world-class experts in infectious diseases reporting to the parliament. And therefore, the kinds of lockdowns and mandates we had would be much different and much, a lot more like the Great Barrington Declaration, where we looked after the vulnerable and let the rest of the people go about their business. I think that's a warning for Canadians to recognize the importance that they need to keep involved in the civic life to ensure that freedom continues. Because Absolutely. if they do not, um, like you say, it's just, it's kind of like the law of entropy. They, it just, everything collapses. It just, it just falls apart over time. And, and we need to have that constant renewal of the importance of civil life. In your proposed Magna Carta for Canada, you make mention to this. You make mention the importance of Canadians to have teaching in the schools for the importance of them being able to learn how the Canadian system works. And this is extremely important. And I'm wondering, maybe you can just speak a little bit on that, but then we can just have a look at some of these that you highlight. Yeah, I'm, I'm one of the ones I mentioned, one of the principles I mentioned in the Magna Carta, the change that I see that's necessary in order for us to sustain our democracy yeah. is in education and particularly in the secondary schools. And so I'm proposing that a mandatory course in civics be in all the high schools of Canada or even in the middle school, starting in grade 8, and every year thereafter until you graduate from high school, whether that's grade 12 or grade 13 or whatever, whatever the last year of high school. So you get at least four years of mandatory teaching and learning about right. how our country operates, because how can you be a good citizen if you don't know how our country operates? Right. How the, where, does that, where does the municipal government come from? Where did it get its power, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And then how does the provincial government work? And, mm -hmm. and how does the, uh, the federal government work? And then compare that, put a curriculum together over four years, compare that to other democracies. First, the democracy to our south, uh, the United States, which is another federation like ours, and then do a comparison with a, a country which is not a federation, like our mother country, England, right? as a unitary state, or like France, which is a unitary state. And then you could do a British Empire, one like, like Australia, which is a federation. And after four or five years of having that kind of grounding into how our country operates at the three major levels of government, mm. I'm sure a lot more people would be interested in politics, would be interested in pursuing that as a citizen because they know now about it that they, didn't, they wouldn't have known if they didn't, weren't forced to take this in school. This business of choice is wonderful, but like all democracies, right back to Socrates, will we'll, we'll tell you when you read it, with choice comes responsibility. Mm. So we have a responsibility as a society to ensure that certain parameters that we establish contain within them mandatory things for people who are not adults to learn so that they become better citizens. Absolutely. So yeah. uh, that, that, that's the one thing I, I also have in there, of course, about the political parties. One of the reasons why yes. uh, we have uh, our democracy has decayed is because we have the NDP party, the Green Party, the Conservative Party, and the Liberal Party in the House of Commons today, just like at the federal parliament, for right. now, the national parliament, the federal parliament. 
Now just look at it. All four of those political parties have members in the House of Commons. Not one of those political parties has on their website the financial statements of that party. Mm. And, and especially the audited financial statements of that party. There are no financial statements on the website, I've checked it out, of either one of those parties. So, question, how can we therefore allow any of those parties to form the government if we can't see how they can manage millions of dollars of their membership finances that come in knowing that if they become the government, they're going to have to manage billions of dollars on behalf of all of Canada. So a prerequisite to being a legitimate political party should be that they have to produce annually their audited financial statements so that we know not only where their money comes from, which election Canada now has a law, but we also know where their money goes and that they have not only financial statements, but audited financial statements. So that makes them legitimate. And I guess there's also, one would think, a conflict of interest audit, as it were, because if you know how they're spending the money and who's giving them money, that helps as well. Although all of the contributions to a party are already made public, right? They're, so. they're on the Election Canada's site. Right. But they're not always up to date, by the way. I've been going back and forth for months now trying to get the latest. They're not mm. really up to date. That's the other thing. We need Elections Canada to do a better job on, on exposing, not only, not just exposing, but releasing the data from all of these political parties and where their money came from. But we also want to know where the money was spent. We want an audited financial statement. I mean, the first thing anybody does when they get involved in a company, right? right. The yeah. first thing that any citizen would want, okay, I want to see your financial statements first. I want to see what you, you know, how you spend your money before I invest in this company, whether it's private right. or public, right? And all yeah. the public com companies that are on the stock exchange, either in Toronto or New York or London or Paris or Frankfurt or Tokyo, wherever in the world, these public companies have to produce audited financial statements. Right. So it's totally ridiculous that, we're allowing this to happen, and, and, and going along with that is one of the big gaps that we've now discovered in our Parliament of Canada is that an MP can break a federal law and still sit as an MP in that chamber. Mm. In other words, a law maker can also be a law breaker. How can that be? The Prime Minister has broken the conflict of interest law, not the ethics, the yeah. law. Five yeah. times and he still sits in the parliament. Your point here is, look, if you're going to talk to talk, you better walk it, walk right? Walk absolutely, yeah. because otherwise you don't have a democracy. It's all a facade, right? Mm. And, of course, that's what I've learned over the last 30 or 40 years. It's deteriorating. It was bad enough during my time, but it's even worse now. And I'm willing to accept responsibility that I was part of, as some people call it, the swamp. But uh, while the light holds out to burn, the vilest sinner may return, I guess. And uh, <laughs> here I am. And I'm willing to admit that our, our democracy ha has been deteriorating and that I was both part of it as a member and as a premier and also part of it when I was a consultant. But as a consultant, I had learned my lesson. And when I got out of politics, I did not accept any of these uh, big consulting fees. And my wife and I, we paddle our own canoe in a very small consulting company but we managed to uh, to get by mm -hmm. and and to be profitable over the years that we were involved. But I had learned my lesson and knew. For example, I don't mind admitting, and I've said this publicly, the first advice I got when I won that leadership on Patty's Day, March 17th, 1979, the next day, the first advice I got from the clerk of the executive council Congratulations, Mr. Peckford, on becoming the new premier. I'm glad to be at your service. Yeah. Number one, don't call the Minister of Justice. The Minister of Justice and the Justice Department and the prosecutorial section of that department is sacrosanct. It is independent, and you have no business interfering with its process, like the Prime Minister Trudeau tried to do with right. uh, uh, Wilson Rabel. And right. the second thing, that a lot of your listeners and viewers will be interested in, and they might have heard me say this, this is unbelievable. Be very careful of SNC-Lavalin. 
Wow. Lavalin was around then. SNC mm -hmm. was separate from Lavalin, and they joined later. And so I was, because they were just coming into the province, bidding on projects and stuff. Right. And of all of the companies that were around bidding on projects, one of the ones that already showed that they were questionable in their ethical dealings was Lavalin. Mm. That was in March 1979. Fast forward to how many prime ministers later? Mm. How many political parties later? To Justin Trudeau, the son of the prime minister, right back during most of my time in the 80s. Right. Having the minister of justice in Ottawa trying to protect its integrity from a company SNC Lavalin, part of the corporate entity that I was warned about several decades before. Mm -mm. And it's that corporate relationships that it seems that perhaps the financial records of parties would be important to understand what's been going on. And you're wanting more disclosure. Okay, so that's good. I like that. And then also you've got, uh, I'll just go through some of these real quick, just uh, kind of whet the appetite for those who are watching. Former Premier Peckford is suggesting that we need to have private members' bills that can be debated and voted upon within six months of parliamentary sitting from the day of its introduction. You want judges that are going to be more criteria that is established as to qualifications and that they must also come before full parliament for approval. So that sounds a little bit like an American style of an appointment process. That's well, what you're recommending? Yes, because I think our present system has failed. And even though there's been some reform over the last number of decades, it's mm. still a lot of it is secret, as many people have pointed out. It's still, you know, the old boy system kind of thing. And so we need to have it more transparent. Yes, they must be qualified. There must be very strict, high standards in order to become a judge of a superior court anywhere in Canada both provincially and federally. Yes, no question, they must be just as tough as they are now, if not tougher. The criteria by which you qualify to even be considered as a judge. But then right. I think, given that the courts themselves have engaged in so much more than just interpretation and into almost into policy, right. Right, as we can yep. see it, right, mm -hmm. then it's only right, if this is to be a democracy, that our representatives who we elected have an opportunity to inquire upon the views of these and be questioned and be determined by their answers whether in fact they are found acceptable and then for that parliamentary committee to make recommendations to the government which are binding upon the government. We've got no choice in that right now yeah. because I think if you look at the decisions over the last 40 years, there's nowhere else to go with this. It has to go to Parliament has to go to the people. There was a time in the British parliamentary system when we had this kind of trust built up mm, yeah. uh, that we could trust the system, right, to produce the best minds and the most, not only the best minds, but the most impartial minds. Right. This is right. what's happened. There's lots of good qualified people around. People say to me every day about, well, he's a smart guy. And I said, yeah, so was Napoleon, so was Hitler, so <laughs> was uh, Lenin, so was Stalin, so was Mao. So the issue is not a question of being smart and in our society qualified. It's a question that I have solid, independent judgment that goes along with those qualifications. That's where we've fallen down on the job, I think, and where we're going to need to have some amendment. Very interesting, uh, Mr. Bussey. You'll be interested in this. It's related to what you just asked about. I don't know if you're familiar with the new, small, little, tiny, tiny territory called Liberal Land. Liberal Land? It's a strip, a strip of land on the Danube that got lost in the disintegration of Yugoslavia when Croatia and Slovenia and Serbia were being formed as independent states when okay. Tito tottered and fell. Right, but okay. Out of all of that came this little strip on the Danube, which wasn't in the jurisdiction of any of these new countries. A man in Czechoslovakia, in Czech Republic now, and other freedom lovers identified this land and have now claimed it as liberal land. And you can go in on, online, by the way, and see it. Mm. I did a number of interviews with this gentleman and his cohort, or to be the government 
of liberal end. Okay. And they're establishing a constitution. I got a call from them the other day from their uh, people that helped set up that interview with them a few months ago. His people want me to do a conference with him and to give him some additional suggestions on the constitution that they are creating. I've already given them so much back a few months ago. Right. But as a result of, of, of amending and, and reforming this, and they're going around the world to try to get the other nations of the world to accept and recognize this as an independent jurisdiction in the world. Right. So it's really interesting because I've gotten involved right from the ground floor. And one of the strong points of their constitution is that at the end of the day, the judiciary even, let alone the prime minister or the executive of, the, of this new country, breaks the law or whatever, right, is very, very unethical, does something wrong, that at the end of the day, the people have the choice to remove that judge or that prime minister. Yes, and, and that even the, the chief justice and the judges of the superior court or the constitutional court of this new jurisdiction would at right. the end of the day be subject to recall or dismissal by the people if it was found by their parliament, right? And it was established yep. that these people were, were not carrying out their duties as described in the legislation. So it's really interesting. It all comes back to the people. And that's, mm. and I just want to add on to that, that's when you've said that what I'm suggesting here in Canada is something like the American Constitution. Yes, because the American Constitution at the end of the day, whether the people decide properly or not, that's what democracy is all about. At the end of mm. the day, it's, it's up to the people. And so it should be in Canada. You have given us a tremendous amounts of material here. Looks like it's about 13 different points on this Canada's Magna Carta. We could spend a lot more time. Is there any other point that you think is something that our listeners should be aware of? I am very strong on a nation state. I'm very strong on the sovereignty of a nation state. In other words, Canada is an independent country. Yes, we can sign deals for trade, as mm -hmm. they did back in the Middle Ages with the Hanseatic League, as right. they did back in the, in the Athenian days. One of the strong points of Athens being a democracy was this ability to be able to trade uh, throughout the Mediterranean, throughout the Aegean at the time, and began right. have a strong navy, by the way, as well. So right. it seems to me that what's happening in the world today through the World Economic Forum, through even a corrupt now United Nations, through a lot of these international trade agreements, that a lot of countries have elected leaders and a lot of banks have elected bankers, right, right. who are internationalists and who right. want to see a world government of some form, right, which diminishes the sovereignty of the nation state. Mm -hmm. I think that is bad. I think mm -hmm. that's when you start to see sameness, homogeneity. Not, you're not going to have the same kind of innovation. You're not going to have the same kind of diversity. So I think crucial to world survival as a reasonable civilized society is the ongoing existence of nation states who cooperate with other nation states but remain sovereign. Portugal should remain Portugal, right? France should remain France. My dad used to say years ago, you go to your church, I'll go to mine, but let's walk along together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think that's extremely important when you think, like, even in Canada itself, we have the devolution of power through the provinces, the territories, yeah. And that allows, so for example, there are people I know right now who have left Ontario because they found it so restrictive here with respect to the vaccine mandates, for example, and they have hightailed it now to Alberta so yeah. that they feel there in Alberta, there's a great more sense for individuality, individual freedom yeah. and so forth. Yeah. And, and I think having that choice is extremely important. And when yeah. the world, if it's going to be all the one philosophy, all the one power, I mean, that's what all of the dictators down through the years wanted. Yeah, that doesn't give us freedom. It's important for us to realize that principle. Exactly. That, that, that diminishes individual freedom and in, diminishes individual choice, both at the national level and at the 
local level. By the way, there's a lot of people leaving Canada. Yes. We have, we have a family that are on their way to Panama right now. We're going to set up <sighs> six children and a parent. They're all they're in their 30s, the two parents. Yep. They have six children, and they just packed it in and are leaving. They don't think it's going to change, and that they, they want to go somewhere where they're freer. And, of course, Panama is one of those countries that never brought in the restrictions and the mandates. Yes. And they're going to live halfway up the mountains of Panama, where there's a community around the same size that they left here in Canada, and which has also got you know got transportation and infrastructure yep. and all the rest of it. They're they're gone. We said this past week. You know what? I spoke with some folks here in Ontario just a couple of weeks ago. A guy was telling me he knows of 17 families that are packing up and leaving and going to the United States. There's family I know that's headed to Costa Rica. They've already sold their home and, and have packed up. It's just a matter of now of making yeah. the trip. I have a person who interviewed me in Alberta and, and him and his family have just moved to Mexico. Wow. They left the day, left the day before yesterday. That even raises a whole question of how many people are leaving the country? I would love to know the answer to that. And, and if anyone is out there listening and you know the answer or know where we can find that answer, please let us know. Because it is striking to me, I, I, the, the, the people who I've talked to who have left said, look, we just feel we, we don't trust uh, Trudeau. We think that uh, uh, there's going to be further restrictions coming up in the fall, and we want to get out while we can. And, yeah. and I'm thinking, like, really? Like, is this yeah. the, is this the country that I grew up in? Is this? That's why, like I'm, fight, that's why I'm fighting for, so hard, because I, I see this happening all around. We, we've lost a whole bunch of friends who have left the country. And, and like I say, Mexico... Costa Rica, Nicaragua, quite a few from this area where I live right now, Vancouver Island, gone to Nicaragua, and now yeah. Panama, uh, and, and some going to Uruguay as well, by the way. So that, that those are the countries, as well as the United States. Yeah. Here's a, here's a great point. Where is the Premier DeSantis? Yes. One of the problems we have that, that America, we both have the same problem as it relates to the administrative state and the control of government over our lives more and more with the bureaucracy and all the rest of it. But one thing you can say about America, whatever else you want to say bad about them. By the way, they're our largest trading partner. If a war happened tomorrow, they're going to have to be there to protect us because we can't protect ourselves. So right. we better be very careful about what, how we scratch that elephant. But the long and short of it is at the end of the day, at least they have a Governor DeSantis and about mm. 20 other states that are exercising the full jurisdiction they have under their constitution, including the lady in South Dakota. We have friends in South Dakota who mm. moved there from California for the same reason as we're leaving and going to Florida or Texas or Arizona or whatever. So yeah. uh, there you have it. The Americans have a far better chance of overcoming this restriction on freedom because of people like DeSantis and those other 20 states than we have in Canada, because we don't even have one premier who even remotely resembles what DeSantis stands for in Florida. Yeah, and and it and and this is why it's so important for us to support provincial autonomy, provincial Absolutely. sovereignty, and anytime we 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 end up losing that, it's it's kind of like it's a microcosm of this globalist mindset, right? So we we want to absolutely no question. You know, yeah. we we need to have. The rights of provinces in the same way that Quebec, for example, has consistently said, look, we want to be our own unique society. Right. Right. And, um, and and so that that to me is a strength, not a weakness. What would be your final thoughts on these issues for the Canadians? If we are going to retain our democracy as we have known it in the last 50 years or so, especially through the 50s and 60s and 70s, if we are to retain and have our Charter of Rights and Freedoms really work as a living document, then we're going to have to get more involved at the school board level, at the municipal level, and at the provincial level. We're going to have to attach ourselves to political parties and reform them. They need to be reformed, like I said, starting with the financial disclosure by all these political parties. And we must bring in strong conflict of interest legislation, both in the provinces and in the federal government. You can't be allowed to sit in the parliament of this country and having broke the law, get a slap on the wrist of a $100 fine or $1,000 fine. That's what happened to Minister Morneau 
who refused and did not release all of the data on his financial wherewithal was found right. to be violating his conflict of interest. And what was he paid? Five hundred thousand dollars, and he can yeah. still sit in the in the in the parliament. This is crazy. He had an estate or land over in France, which he didn't disclose. He knew he had to disclose it. Yeah. We, we on the one hand talk about being smart, and then all of a sudden they they, they forgot on a yeah. form that they had to fill out. Yeah. Come on, give me a break. I mean, this is ridiculous. So my plea would be for ongoing civil engagement that everybody should in their communities demand that their MLA meet with them twice a year in their community in a public assembly, an MP the same way, so that these MPs know they just don't go to Ottawa for four years and then come back and get elected after putting out all these glossy pamphlets that go to everybody's door to make them look good and what they've done, that they have to answer in a public citizens' assembly, if you will, or a citizens' group or public meeting yeah. mm -hmm. in their communities so that they, they report back to the uh, citizens on an ongoing basis. Look, a democracy thrives when there's big civic engagement. A mm. democracy fails when there's low civic engagement. If we are to keep our democracy, we must have ongoing high civic engagement. That's great. I really appreciate that. And that's a great warning for us here in this country. I, I just, I can't end the program without us giving a few minutes about your thoughts with respect to the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. Well, I gave a little short note on my, on my blog, not very long, but, uh, I think, uh, it, <coughs> I, I deliberately sort of kept short. I, I met her Majesty the Queen, and her husband, Prince Philip, when we did the Constitution Act 1982 in Ottawa, right. when she signed the proclamation, which severed the last really vestige of sovereignty from London to Ottawa, so that now we could amend our own constitution in Canada. We didn't have to go back to London anymore, right? Right. We still had the symbolic uh, monarchy and still do to this day. But I met her then, and uh, I had other dealings with the... the uh, Buckingham Palace, if you will, through when Princess Diana came to Newfoundland, I was premier and got to know her and Prince Charles, now King Charles III, really, really well. Matter of fact, Prince Charles had read my book. I had one book out at the time, The Past and the Present, which I wrote in 82, 83. They came a little bit later than that. He had gotten a copy of my book and he had read it. Mm. So that when I met him, he, he talked about my book and he really read it because he asked me questions that only somebody who read the book could ask. I mean, it was quite something. Matter yeah. of fact, Princess Diana got um, got a little embarrassed by saying, oh, Charles, you know, the premier doesn't want to be questioned on that right now. And I said, oh, no, 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 Princess, I'm, you're on Brian Hines. I don't mind at all. I'm just overjoyed <laughs> that a man of your husband's stature would have read my little tiny weenie book, teeny weenie Newfoundland. Yeah. And uh, But to get back to the mother, I had dealings through those people coming to Newfoundland and meeting her in Ottawa. As a matter of fact, those people who were around at the time, those first ministers, that's how I became a privy councillor, because usually you have to be a member of a federal cabinet or a prime minister to become a privy council for life. Okay. Okay. PC, honorable in front of your name. Yeah. I was sworn to that by Her Majesty. Oh, wow. We're the only one privy councillors. The rest got it automatically through the governor general. Right. But we, being the first ministers who were part of that constitution, right. so 10 premiers and the prime minister, plus some of his staff, One. Senator who became Senator Mike Kirby, Richardson as well, and a few others, we were sworn, because we were participants in the, in the constitution making, to the Privy Council by Her Majesty, which is quite unique now in Canada, right? Yes, yes. To, to have that kind of designation given that it was given by Her Majesty herself. Right. I right. always found in my dealings with her that she was, number one, very gracious, always very gracious, always willing to listen. And I think, as I said on my blog, she carried the values that you and I had of basic honesty, hard work, meritocracy. You mm. had to earn what you get. I think she was very much opposed to what everything I saw to this whole idea of celebrity, as opposed to being a hero where you earn something, mm. either through service in the war or service to your country as a politician, actually performed and created something. Mm. I think she was very much part of that value system, 
which unfortunately we're losing now, and why we're into this democratic deficit circumstance that we've talked about. But she was a very gracious, courageous person who I think, I mean, look what she went through with some yes. of her children and her grandchildren with some of the things she went through. Yeah. Boy, she could keep that family together. She could yeah. keep that family together. She was a tough, tough lady, somewhat in the tradition of, of Thatcher, Thatcher really being in the tradition of, of, of the Queen because of age. There is no question. We have not only lost a person who was a monarch, the longest serving mon monarch in British history, but we've lost a person who harbored a core of values which are still necessary today, but which are weakening as we speak. Final question on this interview, and that is, is the monarchy still important for Canada? I think it is for why, why I just, what I just said. I think symbols are extremely important. That's why, by the way, when people ask me, what do you think was your greatest accomplishment when you were premier? And everybody already answers the Atlantic Accord, because obviously right, right to this very moment, Newfoundland exists and can pave roads and build hospitals because the largest source of revenue to the, to the province as we speak outside of government taxation is what comes from oil and gas offshore, right? It's right. the Atlantic Accord. But, you know, I always pause and I say, well, I suppose most people would say the Atlantic Accord, and I understand why, obviously that's why I fought for it, but, you know, that flag is pretty important because it's a symbol that lives for all time, and it right. symbolizes our country, our province, it's, it's, it's ocean, right? it's land, it's people, it's Aboriginal people, it's existing people, and so on. And symbols are extremely important. And when we lose symbols, we're going to lose an awful lot mm. as a society. So in that context, because many people misunderstand me when I say that. I'm not talking about that we've got to go to London to do anything. I fought to have our amending formula in Canada and right. that we become a sovereign nation. That doesn't mean I don't respect our traditions and our history and mm -hmm. those things that are in our traditions, our history, which are worth keeping and which should be valued and celebrated. And so right. it's in that context that I think we would be well to ponder those kinds of symbols still have a place in a viable reasonable civilization. Well, thank you very much, Premier Peckford, for this uh, wonderful interview again. And um, I look forward to uh, future conversations okay. as, uh, as things develop in this country from one day to the next. You just never know. I have something for you. Hopefully within the next few weeks, you will hear an announcement about a full-scale inquiry involving citizens of Canada to determine just what happened in the last two and a half years. Mm. We're getting very, very close as a large group of people across the country in bringing something like this together. And I'm hopeful wow. that it will bear fruition very, very shortly. Wow, I'm looking for You've got my curiosity, and I'm sure you have our viewers' curiosity. Again, thank you so much. Thank you, too. Have a great day. Okay, so folks, I just want to thank you for being with us here on Freedom Feature. And uh, our guest today was the uh, former premier of the province of Newfoundland, my home province, uh, Brian Peckford. And until next time, I'm Barry Bussey. The fight for freedom consists not only in the legal battles in court, but also in the battle of ideas at the universities and in the media. It takes time, effort, and money to keep on top of the debates for freedom. Your donation allows us to keep fighting for all Canadians by giving at firstfreedoms.ca.